Welcome to the King's Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Nick A.R. Johnson, Editor-in-Chief and Staff Writer for No Ceilings NBA. And I'm here, of course, with my co-host, founder and curator of the Basketball Intelligence newsletter available at basketballintelligence.net, Ray LaBeouf. Hello there, Ray. Hi, Nick. Very glad to be here today to do uh, our next episode of King's Weekly. We have a very special guest for this week's episode. We were able to talk to Jim Peterson, color commentator for the Minnesota Timberwolves, Ray's favorite color commentator in the league. And we wanted to give that to all of you up top. So in just a moment here, we will switch over to our interview with Jim Peterson. And then after that, we will give our usual recap of the previous week and preview of the week to come. Looking forward to it. So without further ado, here's our interview with Jim Peterson. Welcome, everyone, to King's Weekly Podcast. We're going to be looking ahead to uh, the King's Games coming up this uh, next week. And we're going to start off by talking to Jim Peterson, the color commentator voice for the uh, Timberwolves. And uh, I have to say up front that ever since I started watching League Pass, uh, Jim Peterson has been my favorite uh, color analyst for any of the teams in the league. Uh, and I, I want to say just a, a one word about what I think makes him so great. Although I could say I could talk forever, which I promise I won't. Um, is how one of the things that I think, well, a couple of things that I think are most important is preparation. And this preparation screams at us. And the other thing is the ability to hit that fine line between what he says being useful for casuals and being useful for lifers. And that's so hard to me, but um, he does that better than anybody that, that, that I know. So enough about my uh, raving about Jim, we'll just um, get, get into it um, now. Uh, and I will point out one other thing that uh, those people of my age remember, maybe not a lot of our audience, but Jim, uh, did play for the Kings back in 1988. So um, that's an added feature to this, uh, to having him uh, on today. So Jim, um, I'd like to get your insights into what your expectations are for the game that's coming up in terms of whether it's matchups or styles or coaching issues, or uh, what is it about how the uh, Timberwolves and the Kings are playing now that sort of um, in, give you insight into what the game is likely to be like. Well, I'm, you know, thank you for that introduction too, Ray, because uh, it's really nice. You've always been very supportive and we've been, uh, you know, friends for a long time. And, you know, just to give you some kudos too, because your, your website, Basketball Intelligence, is the best aggregator of NBA articles and news um, if anybody's looking to get caught up on you know what's happening in the league all you gotta do is just subscribe to basketball intelligence and you're going to be a lot smarter so you help me with my prep work well <laughs> yeah. thank you and the check is in the mail <laughs> well <laughs> it's well deserved i mean it's it's just uh, i've told you that before and and uh, so all the hard work that you and your staff do to put put all of that together is fantastic um thank you so much for saying that so um that being said you know um you know, it's kind of weird because this is uh this is a hard uh, time of year, obviously, because of all the travel. And, you know, we've spent Christmas in Sacramento before. So we we're no strangers to be, uh, you know, in in Sacramento at this time of year. So we'll you know, we're going to uh, at the time of this recording, um, you know, we're playing Indiana tonight and then we're going to go to Miami and Philadelphia and then, you know, it's just a it's just a tough road schedule for us because um, starting with two games ago for us, we, we started a, a game of 16 straight games of playing against teams that were 500 plus. Um, so we we played some sub 500 teams. And that's one of the reasons why we have the record we have at, at 18 and five. Um, but now the stretch of the season, we're going to we're being tested. So we lost in New Orleans and New Orleans. Uh, we just beat Dallas and Luka Doncic without Kyrie Irving. Uh, it was a great victory. Our bench came through and played great. Um, and so now uh, we're playing Indiana, and I'm Tyrese Halliburton may or may not play. But then going to Miami and, and playing against the Heat and then playing in Philly is going to be a tough test. And then after that, you know, we've got to come home and play a single game against Los Angeles 
Um, and then we go to Sacramento. So, you know, it's just, it's just a tough stretch for us. And um, so all these, all these 500 plus teams and, and Sacramento uh, is one of the teams that we've lost to one of our five losses was to Sacramento target center. And it was one of the hottest shooting nights of the season. So they came in and just blew the doors off of Minnesota with their excellent shooting. And, you know, we've just really, really had a hard time con containing De'Aaron Fox. I mean, he's been, you know, obviously last season uh, he was so clutch uh, for the Sacramento Kings. And, um, you know, his pairing with with um, Demonis Sabonis has been tremendous. You know, uh, the Tyrese Halliburton trade, people talk about that and do, does Sacramento, you know, regret it. But I think it's been a trade that's worked out great for both teams. You know, that Sabonis... Miles Turner pairing was, you know, they were looking to kind of move, I think both guys and Miles Turner was kind of devalued a little bit, but, you know, Tyrese Halliburton is, is rejuvenated Miles Turner. And I think Damana Sabonis has had re has rejuvenated De'Aaron Fox too. Like, I just think that that pairing is one of the best in the NBA. They both were all-stars last year, uh, all NBA type players. Um, so I just think that what what those two do together is like one of the biggest problems for Minnesota to stop uh, the pick and roll game. Demonis assisting to all those great three point shooters, um, the way that he's able to run all those handoffs and such at the top of the floor, and his great passing. Um, he's just been just just such a tremendous player uh, for the Sacramento Kings, and then Malik Monk has been a real problem for us. Malik Monk, you know, is one of the best bench players in the league. You know, he's up there with Tim Hardaway Jr. Um, as being such a dynamic score coming off the bench, giving you a shot in the arm, such great athleticism. Um, we did not play against Keegan Murray last game. He did not play against Minnesota, and they still blew the doors off of us. So, um, you know, HB's been great. Chris Duarte, I think, is a nice pickup for, for Sacramento. They just have a deep, well-coached roster. Mike Brown's done a great job. Um, and I just think the pace that they play with, the three-point shooting they play with, the physicality that Sacramento plays with, they're they're a little bit you know different than they were last year. But um, it's a team that I think is going to get better and better as the as the season goes on. So the Timberwolves, um, to me, have shown something that is pretty unusual in the sense of how many different things they do well at both ends of the floor, the versatility defense, for example, typically teams are looking to take something away. You could make the argument that they take everything away. Uh, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but um, the versatility and the depth and uh, the fit that they have among players. And if you think back to last season when everything went wrong, you know, starting with Gobert playing internationally, Towns being hurt so much, other injuries, needing time to mesh that never really happened. And what's happened this year um, is what, you know, I was saying, and a, a few people were saying, it's like, wait a minute, these things take time, right? Um, and it seems like um, it's all coming together at both ends. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think offensively um, we lag sometimes because we turn the ball over too much and, um you know, that's that's been kind of an issue for a couple of years, uh, two, three years now for Minnesota is just turning the ball over too much. Um, I, I think that what's been good is that um, the Towns and Gobert pairing, they've figured out the spacing. Um, and I think the addition of Mike Conley is, has helped tremendously because he's kind of understood how to unlock Rudy Gobert. Um, and that's something that D'Angelo Russell was not good at. Um, D'Lo just is a different kind of player than Mike is. Mike is a guy that obviously played with Rudy in Utah. And so, you know, we can do all these separate things. You know, the, the two-man game actions that, that Minnesota runs with, with Rudy Gobert and Mike Conley is, is one aspect of our offense. And then Anthony Edwards is another aspect of the offense because Ant doesn't really need a lot of help from somebody else. He doesn't necessarily need ball screen action. He can play in isolation. He can play in transition. He can beat people off the dribble. Um, so he's uh, an offensive ecosystem under unto himself, as is the Connolly and Gobert two-man game, all the stuff that they do on the sideline, the middle of the floor. 
um, deep corner pick and rolls that are hard to guard. And then also Carl Anthony Towns now, like, you know, Carl is so good either in post-ups. He's one of the better post-up players in the NBA. And then also playing off the catch in the middle of the floor too, you know, Ray, like when you think about in transition, you know, Rudy's rim running and then getting out to the dunker and Carl is in the trail um, a lot of times. And so as the trailer in, in, in uh, as Sacramento fans know, when they, when they watch Demonis Sabonis as the trailer, you know, when Carl's getting the basketball at the middle of the floor, he's got the ability to shoot the threes, one of the best big men shooting three, uh, three-point shooters in the history of the league. I mean, Carl's a 50-40-90 guy. Um, he's been 50-40-90 this season. But he, in fact, he's been 50-50-90. Um, and so he's been shooting the three ball really well. So whether it's pick and pop action, the top of the floor, shooting the three, or in transition, playing in the trail, playing off the catch and going, um, it's we've got all these different aspects to our offense that that is interesting. And then, you know, we've got one of the best bench players, too, in the form of Nas Reed. So oh, yes. Nas Reed comes off the bench from Minnesota and gives you 13-14 a game, but he's got a, a game similar to Towns in that he can play off the catch in the middle of the floor. He can shoot the threes, great post-up game, tremendous footwork. The thing that I've been saying is that, like, if you look at our, our statistically our roster – and, and who scores it's Anthony Edwards is number one Towns is number two it's been Rudy and then it's been Nas so we've had basically three centers be one of our top four scorers um and what team has three centers that can score like that like just it's just not very usual what team has three centers that they'd even be willing to put on the floor <laughs> yeah and that's I mean the game has changed so much but but Nas is a different. These these are um, these are unicorns. You know, Rudy is a unicorn. Like he did, like the kind of uh, pressure that he puts on the rim offensively when he rolls uh, defensively. The way that he's able to protect the paint. Minnesota's number one, the number one defensive team by you know in terms of defensive rating, but also like the field goal percentage. They drive opponent field goal percentage down, and a lot of it's because of Rudy Gobert protecting the rim, and then. You know, Towns is obviously a very unique kind of multi-talented player than Nas Reed is as well. So, but I've been saying that Minnesota needs more perimeter shooters. You talk about Kevin Herter and what he does for Sacramento and what Malik Monk does, his diversity of ability to attack and then shoot threes. Um, well, the Wolves need another perimeter threat other than Anthony Edwards. And so one of the additions we had this year, Ray, is we, we brought in Troy Brown Jr. from Los Angeles um, and Troy has now emerged as a rotational player off the bench, and his three-point shooting has helped. Um, and then um, you talk about their versatility. Um, I think one of the key things for our team is um, is obviously we hang our hat on defense, right? So G Rudy Gobert, you know, has been so dominant, three-time defensive player of the year. Rudy was the focal point of everything that Utah did. Quinn Snyder was a genius utilizing um, Rudy in in on both ends of the floor, but defensively, everything was about channeling people to Rudy in the paint, and they they pretty much kept Rudy camped out um, in the inside the restricted area because they they did studies on Rudy, and they found that um, there was a inverse relationship between field goal percentage and how far Rudy went out uh, from the basket, and so like as, as the farther Rudy would come out. Um, the higher the field goal percentage would get. So like they, they try to keep him back. Right. So, but Rudy's never played with the perimeter defensive players that we have Jaden McDaniels and, and really Nikhil Alexander Walker. When Minnesota made the trade last year for Mike Connolly um, and they traded D'Angelo Russell um, to Utah, who was moved on to LA. It was like this whole three, three team deal. Um they threw in Nikhil Alexander Walker in that deal. And I, I think our fans didn't really know what we were getting. Um, but Nikhil has been just as valuable to our team as Jaden McDaniels is. Jaden McDaniels is an all NBA defensive kind of, kind of player. He's going to make an all defensive team. But Nikhil has been a lockdown defender on the perimeter that can guard anybody. And so we've got two guys now that can that can go on the perimeter and defend at a very high level. And then you add Anthony Edwards, who's a tremendous defender. Mike Connolly's very solid defensively. 
our perimeter defense is is just as important to our success as Rudy Gobert's been in the painted areas. Our ability to guard. That's why, you know, when we play Sacramento, um, Jaden McDaniels at 6'10, 6'11 is the guy that will guard uh De'Aaron Fox. Wow. And so um it and that that's how versatile that Jaden is. Jaden can guard power forwards, he can guard you know, um, Kawhi Leonard, he can guard Paul George, he can guard De'Aaron Fox, he can guard really any, you know, Steph Curry, he chases him all over the floor, you know, Ja Morant. I mean, like, like Jaden is an unbelievable weapon for our team defensively. And then Nikhil Alexander-Walker has become Jaden McDaniels 2.0. Like he's another version. So we have two of those guys. And then Anthony Edwards guards at a high rate too. So it's just, you know, it's really been a fun season from that standpoint. Minnesota's yet to lose two games in a row. Um, and we've been good on the road. Um, defensively, our numbers aren't quite as good. But at home, uh, that's how you know, right, like when you've kind of turned the corner as a team because we've been a perennial kind of doormat. And the way you know you've turned the corner is when you start winning your home games. And Minnesota's done a great job. Only lost one home game all season long, and that was to the Sacramento Kings. <laughs> so it's, when you were describing the versatility uh, defensively for McDaniels, it sounded to me like, oh, that's a latter-day Kevin Garnett. Is that a fair Yeah, story? I mean, well, I mean, KG was a different kind of defender. Jaden, um, the, the one thing that, that Chris Finch really, like, um, asked these, these guys to do is, is to chase, is to chase yeah. um, offensive players over the top of screen. So yeah. – you think about Steph Curry, how he's like a, a shark in the water, just always moving, always cutting, always, you know. And so when you're when you're defending guys like that, you gotta you gotta chase them. Yeah. And and you know, De'Aaron Fox, he's moving, like he's 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 getting screened. Like he when Sabonis comes and set a screen for him, you gotta get through that screen and stay in front of him. And that's not easy to do. So no. that's the kind, you know, Garnett couldn't do that as much. Garnett was arguably one of the greatest pick and roll defenders of all time in terms of containing ball handlers coming off of screens and the way that he could switch um, and the way that he would communicate and dominate the glass. Um, but Jaden has, has actually grown. Like he's like, he was six, nine, six, 10 when he first came in, he's six eleven now. Wow. And so, but his ability to chase smaller, quicker players yeah. is pretty uncanny. And yeah, I'm thinking mostly of just the versatility of being able to guard any position, but you're absolutely right. The specifics are different. Yeah. Um, so I have a question. Last season, uh, prematurely, uh, Tim Connolly got a lot of criticism um, for it wasn't really deserved because the deals that he made hadn't really had time to uh, take full effect. And we're seeing this year, oh, people are saying, oh, gee, yeah, he really is great. So my question is, a lot of the things you've talked about now are a reflection of what a great job he's done. Talk about um, Coach Finch and what impact he has had in terms of getting the team to where they are now. Um, Chris Finch is, um, he's a guy that's paid his dues, you know, like he, he you know, he played Division three basketball or whatever. And, you know, he was um, a pretty good shooter, pretty good player. Um, but you know, he spent so much time in England, um, kind of honing his craft, playing, uh, being, being a coach over there. And, and one of the things that he was able to do was kind of innovate and like the, what you're seeing now, you know, these five out offenses that it's about, it's about pace and it's about unstructured play. Um, one of the things that he b really believes in is that you have to be unpredictable. Um, and so a lot of set plays that are, you know, play calling and, and, you know, hand signals and play calling that those things can be scouted and you can take away a lot of options when you understand, you know, what teams are going to run. But when you're unstructured, when you're random and when you're, when you're reading what the defense is doing and reacting to that and you're, um, you're, you're high volume three point shooting and playing with pace and, um, you know, trying to keep things more open um, I think that's uh, it's a fun system to play in. I, you know, I played for Don Nelson. Don Nelson was uh, a, a big time innovator back in the '90s. He was ahead of his time playing that way, and so everybody's kind of trying to do it now. Everybody's kind of trying to play random, and so Finchie's just really good at coaching it because he's been playing that way for a long time. Um, he's he's very very innovative in that in that way. 
And then he's boiled things down to like, he knows what's most important. So he doesn't sweat a lot of stuff that other coaches might sweat. He's really good at communicating with players. Um, guys love him. And um, he's also unflappable. Um, the way that he was brought in, you know, he, he very, very rarely do coaches come off some other team's bench during the season. So when Gerson Rosas fired Ryan Saunders in New York, um, basically they plucked Chris Finch off of Toronto's bench during the season, which, you know, normally when coaches get fired, someone on the bench on the team already is elevated to interim, right? Yeah. Very rarely do they bring somebody in out of from somebody else's organization. And so, um, you know, when Finchie came in, like he, you know, there was a lot of flap about did they go through the due diligence of, of interviewing, you know, all the different candidates to be able to get the best candidate or whatever. And um, he didn't, he didn't let any of that bother him. Um, when Gerson Rosas was let go, like that was a big deal. Um, Finch was a rock and he just, you know, navigated the rough water. So he's just done, a, he's done so many great things. Um, he's broken a lot of bad memories in Timberwolves history. We've, we've gone to a lot of places where we've not won for a long time and Finchie's gotten us wins um, on the road. Um, and he's just, he's just a super smart, easygoing, very approachable. Uh, he's boiled things down to what's most important. And he's, been a huge reason why this team has been so successful so what you said about um the timberwolves history and how finch has been changing it will remind a lot of kings fans about the king's history and how mike brown has been changing <laughs> changing that yeah. I've, I've spoken probably enough i'm going to turn this over to nick now i'm sure has some uh, things he'd like to talk to you about yeah, so I'm really interested by the fact that you brought up pace with this team. So two years ago, the Minnesota Timberwolves had the fastest pace in the NBA. Last year, they were seventh in pace. So far this year, they're 18th. And so I'm curious, first of all, how much of that do you think is just due to the more defensive focus of this year's team? And also, how do you think that will play out on Saturday night against the Kings? Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, sometimes pace can be deceiving um, because, um, you can you can be middle of the pack in pace and still play fast. Um, you know, we want to push the ball up the floor. We're looking to hit ahead. We're looking to get the ball back in bounds quickly and get up the floor. We don't want to play against set defenses all the time. So we want to get it up the floor and we want to run too. And so pace is something that they talk about all the time. But everybody's playing fast. You know, so it, like it's it's hard to be you know at the top of of the the pace race you know sure um i think that that anthony edwards he, he's best when he's playing fast i think that um you know we're looking to, to get carl anthony towns involved so sometimes you know and also mike Connolly and rudy gobert like we're looking um and finch doesn't always want to run pick and roll by the way either so but he does want to move the ball and so you know some of these defenses are very very good and so in order to penetrate them you've got to maybe uh, change sides of the floor. So yeah, you may not be, you know, seven seconds or less, um, you know, trying to get shots up quickly uh, like Indiana's trying to do, for instance. I mean, Indiana, I mean, they are trying to jack shots up super fast, but I think that Finchie's more about, yeah, if you can get a quick, sh a good shot, that's, that's a high quality shot. Anthony Edwards is always taking shots early in shot clocks, but he wants to manipulate and move the defense, and the best way to do that is by is by having the ball change sides of the floor. And um, the Wolves have done a, a good job of moving and passing the basketball. So I think some of that pace stuff sometimes is a little bit of misnomer because I think we still play fast even though we're middle of the pack in pace. So you also mentioned earlier sort of the potential need to look for another shooter. Do you think that's going to be something where maybe they look at a guard just to sort of shore up that rotation behind Mike Conley? Or do you think it's just we need shooting wherever we can get it? And certainly having Carl Anthony Towns and Nas Reed helps in terms of getting spacing from the five spot. But what are your thoughts in terms of sort of where they might look positionally for that shooter? It's a great question. Um, you, you know what, Nick? I think that... Um... On our roster, Troy Brown Jr. has has potential to up his his usage and his ability to get shots up, especially his three point shooting. He's already been 
very clutch in some games. I mean, he won a game for us against Oklahoma City um, at home in a game where Anthony Edwards uh, got a hip contusion and ended up – he's been injured now, Ant has. But Troy came in that game and had 12 points in the fourth quarter with some great three-point shooting. He's had some other games where he stepped up, um, a game on the road against Charlotte where he stepped up. So Troy Brown is is a source of, of other um, you know potential scoring off the bench. Um, we're getting Jordan McLaughlin back, and fans may not know that much about Jordan McLaughlin, but um, he played at USC um, as a college player, was a very good college player. He's been with us for a while now. Um, he's a diminutive point guard. He's 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 small. Um, he's he's a little bit like Ish Smith, like in terms of the speed, like you, you know, that he has. He can really change tempo. But J Max value is his ability to orchestrate and organize your offense, and 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 he and he plays with pace, and he's also an irritant defensively. So, um, so J Mac getting back into the mix could help us. But I'm also thinking that that um, we could actually get a little deeper too, um, maybe perhaps making a, a, a deal by the trade deadline or before the trade deadline. I think that there's, you know, you think about all these teams that are kind of circling the drain here early on, you know, between San Antonio and Detroit and some of these other bottom dwellers in the league right now. Um, there, there are players on other teams rosters, some veteran players that you might be able to acquire, um, and I think that Minnesota could maybe look to do something like that. You think about the Wizards, they're four and twenty. Detroit's two and twenty-three. Um, you know, the Blazers may be in for a fire sale here. Um, and San Antonio, you know, I, you know, they're at for four and twenty right now as well. So I don't know. You, I think you could look on some of these other teams' rosters and see some value players that might be able to help. And um, you know, we'll see if that happens. So what is what what is J Mac? Uh, coming off of that now makes him able to play that was restricting him before? Um, He had um, uh, a a strained ligament in his knee. I I think it was, um, I don't know if it was was like a medial, it was, I don't know, it it was a ligament in his knee that he had a strain. So he had, he had a strain that he was, kept him out for 10 games or something like that. He had a calf strain last season that kept him out, um, he missed a lot of last season, so he's kind of been a little bit disjointed, but he's back now. Okay. And so he's he's someone that could, you know, frustrate De'Aaron Fox a little bit too because he can he can keep up with him. He's small like that. He can get get through tight spaces, and um, he can be an irritant defensively. So he's someone that fans might want to watch out for too. And Kings fans, and I guess fans generally probably don't realize this, but Revan Knight um, held the record for many, many years – for assists to a single turnover over multiple games at 44 to one until that record was broken by J-Mac. I think it was two years ago at 48 to one. He had a string of games where he had 48 assists and one turnover, which is like, yeah, I don't even know how to deal with that. Make mistakes. And, 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 you know, he's really good at at decision-making. So, the, the one thing that te- that teams would do is they would they would lay off of him. They they would dare him to shoot. That's the one thing that he really worked on his on his shooting this past summer. So he he started out shooting the ball great, but then he got injured, so he's not been able to keep that pace up. But right. yeah, he's uh, he's definitely one of those guys you, you love. He's a fan favorite. The fans love him here because of he brings instant energy whenever he comes into the game. So uh, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. This has been incredibly insightful and helpful for all the Kings fans that tune into our show. I would, I would leave you with, with this. Is there anything that you would like to talk about that we didn't bring up? Feel free to any, anything at all about the Wolves or about the upcoming game or, or anything else that just feel free to do. Well, I just, I just think that, you know, one of the biggest things that, um, that our that fans should understand is is like how how classy Mike Connolly is and what a difference maker he's been as, as good as Minnesota is from an Anthony Edwards, Carl Anthony Towns, Rudy Gobert standpoint. Getting Mike Connolly his his professionalism and at 36 years of age, um, Mike is a lot like Chris Paul um, in that you know you know the longevity that Chris Paul's had, but like the what he means to a team whenever he comes to your team like. I feel like Chris Paul, even though he's not won a ring, I think Chris Paul has been uh, such a good player throughout his career, wherever he's been. 
and Mike has been the same way. He's he's a pro's pro. Um, I loved him when he was in in Memphis. He was so good in in Utah. And Mike's one of those players that when you see him up close and you see him every day, he's even better than you thought. I think Kyle Anderson too um, is another one of those players who Kyle played successfully with the San Antonio Spurs and with Memphis. And now that I've seen Kyle up close, those two guys for us um, have been so huge in terms of why Minnesota's only lost um, has lost two games in a row this year because between Rudy, Mike, Kyle, those three have played on some successful teams, and why the Timberwolves aren't the Timberwolves anymore is because of those three those three guys. The professionalism, they they don't let Minnesota take nights off when you're playing sub 500 teams, uh, games that we would drop all those we drop those games so often. Ray and Nick, we would lose to teams that would be like missing three stars. And they would come into our gym and they would beat us at home just because Minnesota wasn't focused. You know what I mean? They just didn't have, but the veteran leadership that these three guys have brought for our team has been huge. You know, I think one of the things that's important for players like that is knowing, understanding, accepting, and implementing their role. And a lot of players that are kind of players like that don't do at least one or more of those things. And especially a player who's been great and is sort of near the end of their career, that's an incredibly important thing. And it results in appropriate fit and appropriate um, usage, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. And it's, it's just, it just starring your role, you know, and Mike, you know, Mike had been sort of not marginalized in Utah, but it was, it was about Donovan Mitchell in, in Utah when he was there playing with Rudy and Don. And so, um, and so Don, you know, he would defer to Don um, a lot and, and Don handled a lot of the point guard responsibilities and Mike took a back seat, but Chris Finch is saying, Hey, Mike, we need you to be a leader. We need you to score. And so Mike now has kind of more of this, uh, a starring role. And I think he's been re-energized by all of that. So I don't know. It's it's just great. I just love them, and and it's it's fun to win, Ray. It's yeah. been a while since for we've sure. Done. Well, Kings fans can relate. Oh yes, <laughs> absolutely. Well, thanks yeah. again, Jim. Much, okay, much appreciated. Um, and um, looking forward to the game. Should be a really good one. Yep. Great. Great talking with you and Nick. Likewise. Thanks, Jim. So thank you, of course, so much to Jim for joining us for this episode. Now let's get into the recap of the week that was. So. This past week started off with Monday night's game against the Brooklyn Nets. I was fortunate enough to be in attendance for that game. And it was a close game throughout much of the night with multiple Nets rallies. But the Kings managed to hold them off every time and managed to sort of break open a bit of a lead later in the fourth quarter. So the final score, 131 to 118, doesn't really reflect the tenor of the game. It was much closer for much of the night. But... Really, the biggest story to me in this one was the Kings setting the franchise record for three-pointers made. And it's one of those things that, you know, 25 threes is not the, it's not the highest mark in the league, certainly, but it's something that obviously is very impressive, something that, you know, not only shows sort of the direction that the league has been headed in, but also the makeup of this team. I mean, I'm a bit surprised, honestly, that this record wasn't pushed higher last year, just given what the offense looked like last year. But always fun to be in attendance for a record-breaking night. Well, they do have uh, some shooters who have improved year to year. And I think notably we we know who, who they are. And additionally, have um, added some uh Shooters who have more prominent roles, uh, either because they're new to the team or they have a more just a more prominent role to the team. So I think um, it's a great direction that the team's going in. And there were multiple of those shooters that we could have talked about, but you know, De'Aaron Fox going five for ten from three point range, him getting from low to mid thirties from three point range to high thirties. It's just a sort of continued progression of what we've seen from De'Aaron Fox over the course of his career from, you know, his first year in the league, basically just being a drive to the basket kind of guy to, you know, getting more comfortable with his mid range shot, becoming really an elite mid range pull up shooter. And finally this year, we're really starting to see all of it come together in terms of him adding the three pointer to the package. I mean, you know, he, did admittedly shoot 37% from deep his sophomore season, 
But, you know, that was on a much lower volume of threes. I mean, that was under three a game. Now he's taking eight and a half per game. He's taking pull-ups from deep. It's not just catch-and-shoot opportunities. And, again, it's the kind of thing when, given how ridiculously dangerous he is at attacking the rim, any inch of space that defenders are forced to give him that he can take advantage of on the drive, you know, every additional inch of space that he gets from his improved three-point shot just not only opens up the rest of his game, obviously, but also opens up the game for the rest of the team in terms of just how much more defensive attention has to be keyed onto De'Aaron Fox. You know, one thing that's interested me about that from the get was thinking back to even his rookie year when, uh, he really didn't have that, an outside shot and people would sag off on him for almost incalculable distances. The rest of his game was so strong that it didn't matter. He could still get to the rim um, as virtually no other player could, maybe one or two others um, that where, where the uh, defender playing off them so far didn't matter. And now if you add in the progression of his shooting to that, that just makes him all the more difficult to defend. I've always sort of thought of John Wall as a very easy comparison to make for De'Aaron Fox, but the biggest difference there is, you know, before obviously his, you know, unfortunate injuries sort of derailed things for John Wall, he still never really got the shot around to the point where it was a threat. I mean, John Wall is a guy who shot 9% from three-point range one season, right? And so, you know, coming into the league, a lot of it was just these guys are ridiculously blazing fast. And John Wall had a passing acumen that very few people have. And even someone as great as De'Aaron Fox never quite got to the John Wall passing level. But in terms of just how much the shooting opened the game for those two guys, it really is two, two paths diverging. And De'Aaron Fox went down the route of better three-point shooting. One of my favorite moments in telecasting history was watching a um, Houston game against uh, Washington a few years ago and announcer uh, Matt Bullard when um, the Wizards point guard smashed one off the point off the uh, backboard said, all in all, just another brick from John Wall. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I think it might be my favorite line ever. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) I. I, I should be pivoting here, but I have to just take another moment to let that one sink in. <laughs> there is one other thing that I do feel like I have to talk about from this Brooklyn Nets game. And I do want to talk about it because it's something that I very much enjoy talking about. It was so wonderful to see just how much Harry Giles is still beloved in the city Absolutely. of Sacramento. And it was a moment when he checked into the game and Harrison Barnes just gives him a hug in the middle of the court, like during cave action. It was so clear that everybody on the King side just absolutely adored him. And the standing ovation he got after the game, I mean, I was in the building and just the cheers every time he touched the ball, you know, even though the nets were down big, it was like every possession at the end of the game, get the ball to Harry, get the ball to Harry. And it was just so wonderful to see how someone who, truly embraced the team and the city of Sacramento in a time when it was not easy for NBA, certainly not as easy as it is now for NBA players to be so beloved by the city of Sacramento and give so much to the city of Sacramento. It was wonderful to see Harry Giles back in the building, and it was wonderful to see all the love that the city of Sacramento still gives him. And, you know, it's one of those relationships that, Maybe somewhere down the line, Harry Giles ends up on the Kings coaching staff or Kings development staff. I certainly don't think there would be anybody in the building who would be sad to have him back. And also the fact that he's been through so much yeah, um, and has gotten back to where he is now and performed so well. And maybe there's even you know hope that um, he can build and progress from there, which would be fantastic. Absolutely. I mean, from being the number one high school recruit in his class to all those knee injuries he had, the lost season at Duke, then coming to Sacramento and embracing the city. And the thing about Sacramento is if you as a player embrace the city, they will embrace you back. And Harry Giles is one of the biggest examples of that. We do have to touch on this next game briefly, but there isn't really all that much to say. I mean, Yet another bad blowout loss to the Clippers on the second night of a back-to-back. You know, this is this is old hat, right? This has already happened this season. You know, it's not exactly a good storyline. I mean, back-to-backs have been backbreaking for the Kings this year. You know, it's the kind of thing where every team struggles with a back-to-back. 
the Kings have been particularly bad in those situations. And there have been a few of those games where it just seemed like they'd almost given up. And, you know, there was the awful, awful loss to New Orleans after a spiriting win over the Dallas Mavericks. You know, again, this is the second time that the Kings have had an embarrassing blowout loss to to the Clippers on the second night of a back-to-back. It's It was brutal, and there's really not that much more to say about it. And especially given that this has been such a great couple of weeks for the Kings, it did kind of stand out in the fact that it was the one loss in the last five games, but it was a brutal look, really brutal look. I, I would say a couple things. One is on the back-to-back issue, let's not forget that the Clips were playing back-to-back. Mm-hmm. Uh, granted, the Kings had to travel, but not that far. And yeah. I don't know how many years per player older the Clips are <laughs> than the Kings, but it's quite a few. Um, the other thing that I would mention is, and we've talked about this for many, many weeks now, that we saw this coming, Um the, the clips when Harden came, there were so many people tweeting and otherwise tweets that have not aged well, just as we predicted, um, that these things take time. And now look yeah. how they're playing, even past that Kings game. What if they won now? Seven in a row? Um, you know, these things take time. And that's a really good t- that's a really good team. Think of the, the you know, the, the, the skills and the stature and the. Um, of the players that they have. And of course it's going to take time to mesh. There is one other thing that I wanted to mention that's sort of tangentially related to this game, which is actually about something that your basketball intelligence colleague, Mike Shearer wrote over on his personal site, basketball poetry, which I thought was a fascinating piece and spoke to a lot of mostly what we talked about while deer and Fox was out, but something that I think is applicable to the team as a whole, which is just, how much less they've been getting to the basket this year. And, you know, as Mike mentioned in the article, part of that is the time that De'Aaron Fox missed, but that does not tell the whole story by any means. And, you know, I think the biggest culprit, you know, that Mike pointed out is someone who's had a really tough season in Harrison Barnes, who, you know, had his incredibly hot start to the season with his, you know, 33-point game against Utah, nearly broke his career high, you know, in the first half, pretty much. He had like, a, I believe it was a 31 point first half, if I'm remembering correctly. But since then, I mean, he's he's struggled defensively and offensively. He's just been floating on the perimeter. And, you know, granted, part of the part of the worst sort of portion of Harrison Barnes's career was when he was with Dallas and just chucking up a ton of mid-range shots a game. And it's not that at least, right? It's not just him pounding the ball into the ground for 18 seconds and shooting a mid-range fadeaway, but he seems to have lost a step. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, that's, that's a problem for any team, right? When a starter loses a step, but it's coincided with, you know, that missed time from Fox and, Also, just the fact that, you know, really the only person who's driving more this year than last year is Keegan Murray. And we'll certainly talk about Keegan Murray more in a little bit. But, you know, again, it's the kind of thing where this team does need that threat at the rim in addition to the three-point shooting. And, I mean, in this Clippers game, you know, they basically were forced out to the perimeter a lot of the time. And they went 10 for 37 from three-point range. And that wasn't the whole story of why they lost the game. But, you know, it's pretty telling that... Ultimately, this was a team that they needed to get to the basket against to be able to beat, and they just couldn't do it. And, you know, putting it all on Harrison Barnes is obviously unfair, but certainly, you know, to me, he's the guy who stands out the most as, oh, this is a pretty significant downward trend from last year. You know, with Fox, I think him distributing a bit more of his shots beyond the three-point line is actually a good thing for the team, but to not have that kind of rim pressure it was more obvious to see when De'Aaron Fox is out, but it's a problem even when he's in the lineup. Well, to what extent do you think uh, how teams are defending them um, is a contributor to that? It strikes me that, you know, they're picking up uh, earlier um, and doing a number of other things that they didn't quite do to the same extent last year. And, and that also would contribute to um, the result that we're talking about. Is, is, is that something you would observe as well? I think that's definitely a part of it. I mean, you know, there's the sort of asinine, semi-obvious comment of, you know, even though the Kings were good all last year, right? It's the kind of thing where, you know, beginning of the season, teams are like, eh, you know, 
this is this is the Kings, right? We're fine. We don't need to, you know, they're not putting up their A game every night, right? And, you know, especially after the Kings started 0-4 last year, it's like, and, you know, also since they hovered around, you know, just over 500 for a lot of the year, you know, now this team is five games over 500 in December. But it's, you know, the kind of thing where, yeah, I think part of it is that defenses are, you know, more keen to key in on them defensively. But, you know, I think part of it also is the Barnes thing that I mentioned. I think part of it, as we'll get into, is that given how the Kings' two biggest shooters were doing prior to literally this week, you know, it was a less damaging proposition to let Kevin Herter and Keegan Murray get up shots from the three-point line than it was last year. And I think that's a part of it as well. But, you know, those are all, you know, again, we'll get into very shortly of, you know, it's probably not a good long-term strategy to leave Keegan open. So, you know, that's the kind of thing where shooters fluctuate. That's just kind of how things roll. But being able to get more attacks on the basket is going to be a key factor for this team. And, it leads me to wonder if there might be some kind of trade in the works. I mean, it's the kind of thing where it's, I don't know, it's not necessarily a need in the sense that the Kings aren't going to be a playoff team if they don't get another, you know, rim attacker. I don't believe that by any stretch of the imagination. But last year, you know, I trumpeted again and again that I was very worried about the backup center situation for this team. I feel more comfortable with that now with JaVale McGee in the fold with Trey Lyles now back and healthy and hopefully with Alex Len returning soon. But another rim attacker would be really huge for this team. And it'll be fascinating to see if and where they can find that kind of player. Trade would probably be the most difficult part only because, and don't get it twisted, obviously Monty and Wes are brilliant in my view. Every single thing that they've done since they've been in charge has been fantastic. And I have no reason to think that wouldn't continue. However, um, in order to, as you know, when you have to trade Halliburton to get Sabonis, you have to give to get. And I'm not sure there's anybody that's worth much to other teams that the Kings would be willing to give up. You know, Barnes, perhaps in the sense of a final piece, even at the stage that he's at now. I mean, certainly not a building team isn't going to trade for him, but he could be a final piece. Um, you know, to a contending team in, in a limited role. But in order to get a really high quality player, who on the Kings that um, has an attraction to other teams, would they be willing to give up? Yeah, that's that's the issue. I mean, Barnes is, I think, the most obvious logical name. Part of that also is just because Sasha Vizankov and Chris Duarte are, are in the wings. But, you know, having Vizenkov and Chris Duarte in the wing makes it easier to sort of see, okay, who's going to take those Barnes minutes? Because last year, you know, it was Barnes and Keegan as the forwards. And then, you know, I guess Kessler Edwards, right? But there's a lot more, you know, potential depth. Or speaking of, look at the new depth, look at Keon Ellis. Yes, uh, that was actually going to, that's actually a perfect way to transition into talking about the next game against the Oklahoma City Thunder, which this was another close game for the Kings. And it's interesting because, you know, one of the one of the things that I talked about after the Kings previous game against the Thunder was that was an incredibly complete defensive game for a team that was without De'Aaron Fox. And part of that was because Keon Ellis had been inserted into the starting lineup in place of Fox and, you know, didn't provide that much offensively, but certainly was a huge boost for them defensively. Well, this game against OKC, Keon Ellis was the offensive spark plug. I mean, you know, he had 17 points, career high, five of seven shooting from deep, six of eight overall, six rebounds, three assists, a steal and a block. And Keon has really sort of taken over the backup point guard spot in a way that I was not anticipating before the season. You know, I have always been high on Davion Mitchell and I was very high on Colby Jones as someone who could potentially contribute ending into the season. I was not expecting Keon Ellis to seize that backup point guard role in the way that he has. And he's done it in a very fascinating way too of not really, you know, monopolizing the offense in a way that you would expect sort of a pure point guard to do, but really just being okay, I'm the fifth guy in whatever lineup construction, right? Like, Demonis Sabonis runs the offense if De'Aaron Fox isn't in the game, right? And, you know, De'Aaron's running the offense if he's in the game. You know, I'm playing off Malik if Malik is the other guard and I'm in the game. But with Keon, you know, he provides an element that 
none of the other guards on this team really do in terms of his defense. I guess, you know, Davion Mitchell is one of the, I think one of the best on ball defenders in the league, but he doesn't have the size that Keon does. He doesn't have the versatility that I, that Keon does. Uh, Chris Duarte, similarly, you know, he's a, he's a more solid option than some guys defensively, certainly, but you know, Keon is much more defensively focused than Duarte is. And it's really going to be, I think, you know, I said this, almost a month ago at this point that it seemed like it was a matter of when, not if they converted Keon's two-way contract. Now it's all but a guarantee that they convert that contract because he's become a valuable part of this rotation. And he supplanted a lot of, uh, you know, two guys in particular that I was very high on to do it. You know, there's multiple ways that players can be a good fit, depending on a whole host of factors, including what are the strengths of the other players. And I think he's, He's shown that he can be a really good fit for the reasons that you were talking about. And now on to yesterday's game, Saturday night against the Utah Jazz. And (laughs) there are really only two words. And those two words are Keegan Murray. (laughs) You didn't say it quite right, but that's okay. Keegan. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) No, I mean, there's, (laughs) there's just not much more to say other than stunned silence. I mean, from Darren Fox going off for 41 against the Thunder, uh, Keegan's like, oh, watch this. He hit 11 straight three-pointers. He broke the Kings record with 12 three-pointers. He was 12 of 13 heading into the fourth quarter. Unfortunately, you know, he got the coach's pole because the Kings were up big, you know, up 30 heading into the fourth quarter. And he got a couple of three-pointers up in that fourth quarter, didn't connect on any of them, but he jumped his three-point percentage from, you know, the 30s to 35.7% from three-point range as of today. And it's been really funny where this entire season, you know, I've been saying on and on, wow, it's been awesome to see how much Keegan's grown on the defensive end. Wow, it's great to see how much more comfortable he seems to be attacking the basket, you know, getting getting more involved inside the arc rather than just being a shooter. And, you know, okay, the shot hasn't quite been there, but it'll get there, it'll get there, it'll come around, it'll come around, it'll come around, and sure enough, here we are, and he goes 12 for 15 from three-point range, puts up 47 points on the Utah Jazz. Well, he went from 30.4 on the season to through three quarters when it looked like his evening was done, 92% for the evening, so that's pretty remarkable. But yes, shooters can shoot, and you know, I the best... Uh, advice to people at that point is stay tuned. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's the kind of thing where, again, you know, for people who maybe aren't as familiar with the Keegan Murray experience, they think, oh, you know, maybe he just, you know, had a fluky run because his, his first year at Iowa, you know, he was not the, you know, three point shooter that he's become, but it's the kind of thing where three point shooting sample sizes are usually small enough that, you know, it's the kind of thing, even just the most, dramatically obvious thing of just last night right he went from you know low (laughs) you know 30 percent range to you know mid 30s and i would not be surprised if we see him creep back up to the 40 percent mark right it's the kind of thing where players can have a cold season right much less a cold couple of weeks from three-point range and you know if you if you lose belief in someone like Keegan with his shooting touch and shooting versatility there's going to come a moment like last night where he burns you and man it was <laughs> just ridiculous i mean if you haven't just do yourself a favor of watching the supercut of all of Keegan's 12 threes from last night just absolutely insane that he just was he was locked in and you know it's the kind of thing where there are very few people on this planet who can go 12 for 13 from three point range in an NBA game. And Keegan Murray is one of them. And it was particularly funny to me that earlier in the day, there were reports coming out from James Hamm and friend of the program, Jason Anderson, that the Kings are not looking to move Keegan Murray in any trade. It's like, well, if there were, if there were trade rumors in, in the morning, there certainly were not trade rumors by the end of the night. Which is why you should ignore trade rooms, especially when you have somebody as smart as Monty and Wes running the show. So let's now move into the preview portion of the podcast. And of course, we already previewed the Saturday night game against the Timberwolves with Jim Peterson in the first half of the podcast. But this is a busy and interesting week for the Kings. So four home games and three very difficult games with a trap game tonight, Monday night against the Washington wizards. And 
you know, there have been sort of three teams in the NBA basement all season. And the Wizards are probably the maybe the best of those three, but it's a very clear basement. And, you know, it's Detroit, San Antonio and the Wizards. So, you know, it's the kind of thing where the Kings have been very good against, you know, teams above 500 this season they have the fifth best record in the nba against above 500 teams but you know there have been times certainly certainly last season where you know there would be a very easy game on the schedule that seemed like oh you know write this one off right and any team in the nba can beat any other team in the nba on any given night and if there were teams that i'd be willing to make an exception for this year the wizards would be one of those teams but especially given how tough the rest of the week ahead is it would be very easy for the Kings to just sort of mentally check out, chalk this one up as a win before they walk in the building and gets gunked. So that's really my only concern heading into this one. But this is a very, very beatable Wizards team. And this is the Kings team on a bit of a hot streak. So especially given what the rest of the week looks like, I'm not particularly worried about this Wizards game. But again, it's the kind of situation where you, you know, you put a wrong foot down and all of a sudden you lose the one that you really needed to win. And the rest of the week looks a lot more difficult. My take on how the Wizards could win would fall into the category of anything's possible. Yeah, exactly. Uh, beyond that, I, I, I don't see it. I mean, hey, they won their last game against Indiana. They won their last game. I have given that. And Tyus Jones, man, right? He's starting to play really well. Uh, Tyus Jones, I wouldn't say started to play really well just because I've always been inordinately in love with Tyus Jones. But given the more of an opportunity. To play, yes, like yeah. And he's someone who... It's very interesting to me because he has such a clearly defined game that any team in the league could use, you know, whether it be he's been an incredibly effective backup. He's been a very capable starter. You know, you're not going to put him in the top half of point guards in the league. But if you're throwing him out there as your starter, you know that you've got a position, you know, solid, right? You know, you're not going to you could look to replace him pretty easily as a starter, but it's very funny to me that both Tyus and his brother have carved out careers as just very effective point guards who can shoot a little bit, can, you know, score around the basket and never turn the ball over. Right. And it's the kind of thing where it always surprises me when both of the brothers, funnily enough, you know, get what I think are low ball deals because they're both guys who I think, wh- why are there not, you know, 28 teams who say, I am very, very happy to give Tyus Jones like a $15 million a year contract. Maybe dependability doesn't get rewarded as much as it should. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly been, you know, the mantra of the Kings from, you know, the time until Monty has showed up until now. Right. But yeah, I mean, you know, him signing a two-year $29 million deal, I don't understand why he didn't get locked down for longer, man. But, you know, I think it's also very telling of the state of the Washington Wizards that the one guy who we're getting really excited about is, oh, Tyus Jones is great. It's like, yeah, I could also go off on how Denny Avdias, you know, made himself into a really good defender and has had a very solid season. And Bilal Kulabali's had a, you know, strong start to his rookie year. Like, you have to dig deep, unfortunately, to talk about positives with this Washington From time to time, Kuzma has a very good game. Kyle Kuzma's had some strong moments. Under-exaggerating a little bit, but yeah, I mean, he, he has his moments. That's well, a team a team that we certainly shouldn't be under-exaggerating is the team with the best record in the Eastern Conference, the Boston Celtics. And they're the second opponent that the Kings will face this upcoming week. And, I mean, you know, we talked about the defensive stuff, of course, with the Timberwolves, with Jim Peterson. The Celtics, very similarly, you know, a team with a strong offense, with a really great defense, strong defensive identity. The wing situation is really going to be the problem. I mean, anytime you have to deal with the two-headed monster of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, it's going to be a problem. And especially given what we were just talking about with concerns around Harrison Barnes, you know, it seems like all but a guarantee that whichever of Tatum and Jalen Brown is not being guarded by Keegan Murray is going to have a big night. And, you know, the other side, the big man tandem of Chris Porzingis and Al Horford, that is not going to be fun for Demonis Sabonis to deal with. And I mean, he's going to be dragged out of the paint a lot by those two guys. And, you know, that's going to be a situation where either the paint is going to be open a lot of the time or the Celtics are just going to be bombing away from deep. And it's a situation where I think a lot of it is going to come down to 
what De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk can do in terms of penetration against the Celtics defense. But when your guards defensively are Drew Holiday, Derek White, and Jalen Brown, again, it's just, it's a tough haul. This is a really good team. You know, it's, it's a bit asinine to say that when they have the best record in basketball, right? But this is a game that will be a very interesting opportunity, especially given, you know, the other two games this week that we haven't gotten to yet. This will be a very interesting week to see sort of where the Kings stand among the elite in the NBA. And it's incredibly weird to say that, but, you know, at this point, a year and a half into the Kings being a high caliber playoff basketball team, that's what we're talking about. And the fact that they have the fifth best record in the league against teams above 500 is a strong sign, but there's a difference between above 500 and the Celtics and the Timberwolves this year. You know, I guess one way to say it is you might start saying there's a reason that the Celtics are where they are, but then you need to rephrase that. There are many reasons why the Celtics are in the position they're in. So the next game for the Kings, they have a back-to-back to close out the week and it's not a fun back-to-back. At least they're both home games, but definitely not a fun back-to-back with the Suns on Friday night and the Timberwolves on Saturday night. And for the Timberwolves, again, the first half of the podcast, we talked with Jim Peterson, and I'm not going to be able to talk about the Timberwolves anywhere near as intelligently as he would, so I'll leave that one up to him. But with the Suns, they're in a very interesting spot. Bradley Beal came back for three games and then got hurt again. And, you know, the injury report for this team is lengthy, right? I mean, Bradley Beal, obviously, Eric Gordon, Damian Lee, Nas Little, Josh Okoge. This is a team that has been ravaged by injury all season long. And, you know, you don't expect a team led by Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, and Bradley Beal to be 13 and 12 through their first 25 games. And, you know, part of that is, okay, you know, This is a team that's had a pretty tough schedule to start the year. This is, you know, it's a team that the Kings have beaten already this year, granted, but, you know, that was a game that was pretty close until the end. And it's tough because, I mean, talking about this team with versus without Bradley Beal, it's a completely different calculus for, you know, how do we deal with it? And certainly it's advantageous for the Kings to not have one of the big three of the Suns to deal with, but they're a lot more threatening than you would expect from a typical 13 and 12 team. And especially given the, you know, the rest of the week for the Kings, the wizards game, if we're counting that as, you know, probable Kings win, you know, if they split the week, then it'll be really important for them to grab the sun's game because certainly with the Celtics and the Timberwolves as the other two teams, this is the most gettable of the non wizards games in the week to come. Without a doubt in the state, of health that that team is in, they're much more likely to be able to prevail against the Suns than against um, either of those other teams. All right. I think that's going to do it from us, unless there's anything else you want to cover before we wrap this one up. Um, Well, one thing that I found interesting uh, going back um, to the last night's game, Fox not playing and at the same time, um, the player that he's most often associated with in some ways, uh, Tyrese Halliburton, did not play for the Pacers. And I think it's kind of, and granted, the Kings played Utah and um, the Pacers played Milwaukee, I believe. Yeah. Um, that accounts for a lot as well, obviously. But I think also it sort of demonstrates that how much more along on the building arc the Kings are than the Pacers are. Tyrese, you know, doesn't have much in terms of uh, support. Whereas uh, I think yesterday demonstrated that uh, even without De'Aaron, there's a lot of other talent um, on the, on the Kings that um, are represent uh, progress along that arc. And if you can even throw in, like he was a throw in, Buddy healed from the same night he, for the Pacers uh, last night. Buddy was 0 for 4 with two assists and one rebound. And, of course, his normal defense. Is that the right word? Normal non-defense? I don't know. Normal whatever. Normal, whatever, whatever normal you want to lack of defense, yeah. yes. Anyway, so I thought, to me, that was interesting. I mean, I think it's also interesting that, you know, that was also the night when Buddy Heald lost his Kings record for most three-pointers in a game <laughs> that true. Keegan snagged in that one. But... Yeah, I mean, I think it's really 
telling that, you know, at this point we have six missed games from Fox this year and the Kings are three and three, you know, not world beaters. They, you know, were a very different team. I mean, a lot more defensively focused with De'Aaron Fox out, but, you know, ultimately the Kings have, have concepts that they can run without De'Aaron Fox in the mold. Right. And, you know, it's a worse team. I don't think that's a particularly strong statement to make. I think that's rather obvious, right? But, you know, they struggle to drive to the rim, even with Fox. That's even more of a struggle with him out, right? It's not like, you know, it's not like the Kings are completely fine without De'Aaron Fox, but it's the kind of thing where they have more potential answers than the Pacers do. And, you know, that's the kind of thing where, okay, you know, you can find ways to work around Fox being out and things are going to look different, but, you know, there's a solution as opposed to just, I guess we, you know, grin and bear it and do what we can with the pieces we've got. Agreed. All right. So that is going to do it for us this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've been enjoying the show, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback on the show, feel free to reach out to us either on Twitter at Kings Weekly Pod or via email kingsweeklypodcast at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.